You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money, your weekly conversation about all things financial, and if we're going to be totally honest about it, all things life. We've got a really great show coming up for you today, but before we get into it, I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the telephone. I had this experience last night with my husband. He had booked a ticket on Amtrak. We were in Philadelphia for my uncle's 85th birthday party, and he was going to come back on the train, and I was going to spend a little bit of additional time with my mom. But after he booked the ticket, shortly after he booked the ticket, we realized that plan just wasn't going to work at all, and we were both going to get in the car together and drive home. And when we looked at the language on the website of Amtrak, it was very clear immediately that he was within the window for no more refunds. Essentially, it said within 24 hours, if you had booked your ticket, you could not get a refund. But he had booked it about three minutes ago. And so he's fretting online, and I said, give me the phone. Because I've done this enough to know that there are things you can accomplish on the telephone that you just can't accomplish online. The rules, when they're set online, cannot be broken online because there's no person online. But if you're nice to the customer service people and you get a compassionate person on the other end, bottom line, it took me about 30 seconds to cancel the train ticket and get a full refund on the credit card. And I bring this up because it seems to me that many people of generations younger than mine are reluctant to pick up the phone at all. I think it's because they have grown up in an environment where everybody just texts. They're reluctant even to email. And so My plea today is if you want to get something done and you're finding you're having trouble just tapping your way to a solution that actually works for you, just pick up the phone. But by the way, be nice. Pick up the phone and be nice and you will be surprised at just how often people are really willing to help you. It saved him, by the way, $107 and it could potentially save you much, much more. And that's what we're going to do on today's show. We are going to talk about things like how to save $500 this month, which is a really great bar to try to hit because if you can save $500 each and every month, you could make a full contribution into an IRA or a Roth IRA for the year. We're going to talk through how to handle some tricky money situations like splitting the check at a group dinner and how to save on products that you might be overspending on even without knowing that you're overspending on those products. We're going to do it with one of the 
editors of a website and a newsletter, an email newsletter called Pure Wow, of which I am a big fan. Have you heard of Pure Wow? It's a digital lifestyle publication that covers everything from fashion and beauty to home and tech and travel and, yes, our personal favorite, money. Even if you're not familiar with the site, you can think of it as your one girlfriend who's just a little bit ahead of the curve, the one who knows about the upcoming fashion trends before they're even considered trends or the hot new happy hour spot or everyday survival tips like how to iron your shirt without an iron. Hint, you can use your hair straightener. As it aptly says on its site, the team at PureWow has endless ideas, and this is true of their money section, too. If you are looking for quirky ways to cut back on expenses or for a, a way to ask for more money at work or not get screwed over at your next group dinner, PureWow is the place to go. And I really should disclose at this point that I am a very, very small investor. Here to give us some advice today is the site's executive editor, Jillian Quint. And Jillian's not just executive editor. She's one of the site's founding members. Jillian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming in. So you oversee all of the personal finance content on PureWow. Yeah, we we have a man, money editor who does a lot of the writing for the money edition, but I oversee it. And we work together as a team really across the full editorial department to bring just tons of money-saving tips to our readers. So I'm constantly reading it, as are the younger women on my team. And we loved this story about how to put $500 back in your pocket every month. Oh, great. That was such a fun one to work on. So if you're one of those people, and I'm sure you saw the research that came out recently about how an astounding number of Americans, half of all Americans, couldn't come up with $400 if they needed it in a pinch. This is exactly kind of the the kind of advice that they need. So you want to come up with your 500 bucks. How how do you get started? Well, one thing to note is that it's really specific to you and your lifestyle and your budget. But the idea is really the same no matter how you live, which is that there are always places where we're overspending a tiny bit or where we're spending for things that are nice to have but not really necessities. So it's about picking those things out and and then cutting them. Um, we went through the typical day for one of our editors, which won't be specific to everybody, but it was really cool to see how you really could scrimp and save here and there, and, and it ends up adding up to a lot. For instance, I know everybody's heard this one before, and before you roll your eyes, just listen to the math Make your own coffee. If, if you spend 450 a day on coffee at Starbucks, you know, if that's 20 work days a month, that's $90 a month. Um, I started doing this about a year ago. I bought $40 five pound bags off of Amazon. They're good. I make it myself, uh, for my husband and me that ends up working out to something like 25 cents a day. It lasts us two and a half months. That's so much money saved. Yeah, I mean, I make my coffee as well, but mm-hmm. I do occasionally go to Starbucks. And I've had the experience where I'm in Starbucks and people will give me the evil eye because, you know, Jean Chatsky is in Starbucks and she's supposed to be the money police. And how can she be in Starbucks? I think that the point that you guys made is the important one. It's not that you're telling people to give up coffee. It's that you're suggesting they give up their daily vice or something that they can put a finger on that's costing them money where 
it's easy to make that swap. Exactly. And if coffee from Starbucks is the one thing that brings you joy in this world, by all means, keep having it. It's more figuring out the things that don't necessarily bring you that much joy and are just eating away at your wallet. Maybe it's going to happy hours when you could easily invite your friends over with a bottle of wine and save yourself 40 bucks. It really bums me out how you go to restaurants and you pay $15 for a glass of wine that would cost you about $15 for the entire bottle at home, right? Exactly. That's, that's the wine math. It's yeah. like four glasses to a bottle and they charge you the price of the bottle for a single glass. And if the experience is great and you love the bar, by all means, but again, if you'd be just as happy in your living room, which personally I usually would be, there's no reason not to do it there. Often I find with people, they have to start tracking their spending to figure out mm-hmm. where their money is going. Do you guys suggest this too? We do. Um, we did a story about two years ago about writing down everything that you spend. And I tried it for the story and it was so sobering. I, first of all, I got very addicted to it. It's a very addictive task to do. And I only did it for about two months. Why do you think it's addictive? Well, because it's sort of, I mean, it's the same principle as my fitness pal or anything where you're tracking calories. You can kind of game it at some point and you start thinking, okay, so I spent $400 last week. Can I get it down to $350 this week? Um, you, You really start getting competitive with yourself. And also, if if you are doing it with a partner with your partner, we were very much trying to outdo the other one and then getting very judgy when, when the other one would sort of buy an extravagant <laughs> cup of coffee or some such. It's amazing. It gets a little obsessive. I, I was interviewing a very young girl mm-hmm. um, today for an upcoming issue of Your Money, which is the publication that we work on with PwC that goes out to fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in the schools. And this is an astounding young woman who's a high school junior who has saved $7,000 toward paying for her own college by working at $7,000 by paying by working at KFC and Office Depot. And she, she, I said, how did you do this? Because my children, just full disclosure, have not saved this much money by their own work and certainly not by age 17. And she said what you just said. She said, I I got a little obsessed. I got a little obsessed with it. And I think if you're going to get obsessed with something, exercise and saving money are the good things to get obsessed by. Absolutely. Um, so PureWow covers a variety of money and and social situations. We It covers the, the romantic relationships. It covers group dinners. And I promised everybody you would tell us how to get out of the awkward situation of going to a group dinner, ordering an appetizer, or not drinking, and the bill hits the table and everybody says, okay, let's just split it. What do you do? Oh, the dreaded group dinner. Uh, this is a terrible situation that I'm sure we've all been in. Uh, the first thing to do is to try to preempt it. Um, I think that whatever you can do ahead of time to make sure you don't put yourself in that position is great. Um, one thing that I like to do is to sort of be upfront with my friends ahead of time about what my expectations are. So maybe that's picking the restaurant with your budget in mind. If you know it's a crowd where they're going to want to share, where it's going to be easier to split, try to pick a restaurant where you're going to be comfortable with that price point. Um, Another thing you can do is really try to set the precedent with the group that the person who spent the most money speaks up that she did it. She did so. Um, If you go out to dinner and you notice that you've 
got a steak and three glasses of wine and everybody else had a salad, be the bigger person who, who, who cops to that and hopefully others will follow suit. Then once you're at the restaurant, there are things you can do to try to prevent this situation from coming to be. For instance, why don't you suggest that everybody order their drinks at the bar? Often alcohol ends up being the most expensive thing on the menu. So if everybody's paid for that up front, then there's less room for that inequality when, when the check comes. That's but, a really good idea, yeah. actually. That, that one I have not heard before. Um, and also, it's, you know, uh, plenty of restaurants, certainly here in New York, you have to do that anyway. So it's an easy one to, to make happen a lot of times. But ultimately, if you get to the end of the meal and you ordered the salad and nobody else did and they all want to split, speak up for yourself. Most of the time, your friends or whoever you're out with isn't there to screw you over. They will gladly acknowledge that you owe less than them and should pay accordingly. Okay, here's another tricky situation. You've got parents who are getting older and you realize you've got no clue about their finances. What do you need to talk with them about? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, well, if you grew up like I did, not really talking with your parents about money a lot. And it was interesting. I was listening to your your show um, about how to not spoil your kids. And I was thinking, well, this all just starts with talking about money. But if you can't go back in time and change that, you have to sort of start anew as an adult who can talk to your adult parents about money. That was, by the way, our podcast with Ron Lieber, who is with The New York Times and wrote The Opposite of Spoiled. So if you're looking for it, that's how you can find it. Fantastic episode and fantastic book. We reviewed it at PureWow last year. He's very, very smart. He's great. Um, but in terms of the conversations you should be having now with your parents, you need to know the status of their retirement accounts. You know, first of all, if they have them, how much is in them and what they expect to use that money for. Are they planning to retire at what might be considered an early age? What are their plans for long-term care? Um, you know, it's interesting. Are they expecting to move in with you <laughs> or do they have something else on the table? And if your parents are reluctant, any tips for getting the conversation? just started? You know, I think that oftentimes if you put it in the context of you and your kids and your financial future, it's hard for them to turn a blind eye to that. You know, if you make it less about them and more about we need to figure out how we fit into this, are my kids' college tuitions affected by this at all, that kind of thing. I think it's easier for them to to step up and talk about it in that instance. There's also a lot of stuff that you need to talk with them about that doesn't necessarily rely on cold, hard numbers. Some of it's just very basic logistics. For instance, I know my parents have a financial advisor. Do I know that person's name or phone number? No. I, I probably should have that information. Yeah, you probably should. And <laughs> my stepfather, who I refer to often encouraged us all to write something he calls a letter of instruction and suggestion because he wants to suggest things. Well, that's a great idea. From the, from the grave, uh, God forbid. But the idea is it's a list of all your accounts and your passwords and the important people to call, as well as your suggestions in an ethical will sort of way for how you'd like your resources to be used, which I think is a, is a very, very nice way to do it. And so we all have these documents and are you allowed to see them ahead of time, or is that something you only can open should the worst come to No, pass? I think you can see them ahead mm -hmm. of time. I think it's it's something if you feel like you want to share it ahead mm -hmm. of time. I mean, I've seen my husband's. My husband has seen mine. Um, I have not seen my mother's, but I know where it is. And so, and I, and I pretty much have the lay of the land where her finances are concerned, so I'm not super 
worried that I'll miss a step someplace. But if you are, I think it's okay to say, can you make me a list of the important people? Can you make me a list of the institutions? You don't have to share the numbers, as you said with me, but it would be terrific if you could give me at least this level of detail so that I could feel comfortable. And by the way, can you tell me what you want? Mm -hmm. I'm my mother again, and I've spoken about this before, but my mother has been very clear about the fact that she has absolutely no interest in leaving her home and moving into some sort of an assisted living place. She's said, I will give you money. You can add on to your home. I will live there. We're clear. I mean, you know, we may have to tweak a little bit, but we are very clear on what she wants. So it's it's helpful. I want to ask you, Jillian, mm-hmm. about how Pure Wow comes up with all of its story ideas because, boy, you guys cover the gamut. But before we do that, I want to tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Pure Wow's Jillian Quint, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So millions of people read Pure Wow these days. How do you decide what you're writing about to satisfy this broad range of mostly women? Mm-hmm. I think that, number one, it's really nice because our readers tell us what they're interested in. We can see it every day by what they're commenting on, what they're clicking on. So we get a really good sense of what's engaging to our readership. But in terms of finding the ideas, I mean, it's a grind. It's every day. I think it's going to any situation in life with the editor hat on and thinking, is this a story? Um, my my poor family and loved ones, everything we do, I'm constantly trolling and, and mining for content. I'll probably corner you when this is over and, and beg you for ideas. I am full <laughs> of ideas. It reminds me of when I was at Smart Money Magazine um, and I was there for the launch my friends would get so sick of me going out to dinner because everything they said, oh, I'm shopping for life insurance. Oh, tell me about it because that's a story. It's Real life is an ongoing story, particularly when the window that you're viewing it through is money because mm-hmm. money is just the thing that makes us all able to accomplish our other priorities. So I think it's fascinating. You are, I wish everybody could see you. You look beautiful. You are a mom and you have one on the way. I do. (laughs) You've got a son who's how old? A one and a half. And you're expecting? I'm expecting in the fall. And do you know what it is? It's a girl. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So Pure Wow offers secrets of work-life balance. Um, Do you believe in them? I do. I mean, I'm really lucky in that I work for a company that is so parent-friendly, um, you know, really great policies in place, just a really sensible approach to to being a working parent. And I know that not everybody is afforded that luxury. But yeah, within within my own very privileged situation, I very much believe in work-life balance. Um, there's a lot, I mean, I've only been doing it for a year and a half, but there's a lot that I've learned in that year and a half about how to be a sane person and a you know, valuable employee and a good mother. Sanity is key. Definitely (laughs) key. All right. So share with us, what are some of the strategies that women who are sane, both at work and at home, employ? 
Well, I think one of the major ones is compartmentalization, just being able to be where you are when you're there, which is easier said than done. But it's being at work and not stressing about the dishes that you left in the sink. It's being at home and not worrying about what's going on with that story that you left two thirds of the way down when you left work. It's being out with your friends and not feeling guilty that you're missing bedtime. It's that stuff. Is there is there any way that you found any strategy that you found to help you stop thinking about the story that you've left two-thirds done on your desk or stop thinking about the fact that there are dishes in the sink. I, I, I've got to say there, you know, I've, I will go on with my day, but there are times at four in the afternoon when I realize, oh, my goodness, I'm going to go home and the dirty dishes are still going to be there. I mean, don't get me wrong. Those dishes are always somewhere in the corner of my brain, but there are definitely coping mechanisms that, that can make you better at it. I think one of the important ones is to be really upfront with yourself and your colleagues about your expectations. I always say, don't be sketchy. Um, I think sometimes there's this instinct to lie a little bit to say, I'm going to be late to work because I've got a client meeting when really it's because you have to go to the pediatrician. And I've just sort of taken the stance that I'm just going to be really truthful about what's going on. And if I have to go to the pediatrician, I'm going to tell people that. And that's certainly what other people in my company do. And I think that it's just garnered a lot of respect among the people that I work with. And as a result, everyone trusts one another and it makes it okay for other people who have to do that in the future. Um, it also it gets really sketchy, by the way, if you fib to your kids because they have the ultimate BS detectors. <laughs> they know when you are not going to be home in 15 minutes, but you're going to be home in an hour and 15 minutes. And oh, they no, I'm don't in trouble. Let you slide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think I think it goes both ways. I think you can't um, be sketchy with your coworkers, but you shouldn't be sketchy with your kids. You also say to be upfront about when you're unplugging. I think that's interesting. Yeah, um, I, I think again in this modern workplace, there's this expectancy that you're online all the time, and also if you are somebody who takes off a little bit earlier than other people to, you know, head to carpool, you might think that you have to be online all of that time. And the truth is, people will understand as long as you're pretty upfront about when you do unplug. So my colleagues know that I leave at 530 and I'm pretty much off the grid until my son goes to bed at eight and then I'll be back online. I can totally answer your email then. But for those two and a half hours, you're going to have to deal. I think that's really, really good advice. You also say that people let things go. And I, I hear myself telling both my kids and my coworkers occasionally, just let it go. Just because you can only control the things that you can control. And if it's not something you can control, the sooner you can let it go, the better off you're going to be. Mm-hmm. One more thing I want to do while I've got you yes. here. So one of the favorite elements of Pure Wow is a series that you call Splurge or Scrimp. Let's do a very quick round Ooh. of Splurge or Scrimp. I want to know, let's say you're having a baby, mm-hmm. as you are. Is a stroller a splurge or a scrimp? A stroller is a splurge. The The cheap ones are so cheap. I, I got a $40 one and the wheel fell off. <laughs> a high chair? Oh, that can be a scrimp because they're just going to get that thing disgusting. It just needs to wipe down. And a car seat? Splurge, safety. Well, and you're going to have it now for six or seven years. Yeah. Right? They morph from the baby seat into the car seat into the convertible seat. They're they're crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. For your face, face wash. That can be a scrimp. We talked to a dermatologist who said that as long as your skin is pretty normal, um, Neutrogena's $8 face wash works just fine. I love Neutrogena. <laughs> Moisturizer? 
Scrimp, most important ingredient is SPF, and most drugstore brands have it. Really? Yeah. Oh. I'm Same dermatologist. Save, I'm going to save some mm-hmm. money. How about anti-aging products? Now, that's when you're going to want to splurge on. Those are actually chemically formulated. If you're going to go to the trouble of, because there's no such thing as a very cheap anti-aging product, you might as well shell out for the, the good one. Okay. And one more for your fridge. Milk? Ooh, that's up for debate. Um, our official stance is it's a scrimp. You don't have to go with anything fancy to to get quality milk. There's no such thing as growth hormone in any milk that you're going to get at the grocery store. But since becoming a mom, I've totally switched and gone organic. You know why I'm organic with milk? And I'm I'm not organic with mm-hmm. most things. Organic milk lasts longer. It does. It lasts. And it lasts three to four weeks. It and really does. if you're the type of family as we are that doesn't use that much milk anymore. You actually save by buying organic because you're not throwing out milk, which makes me crazy anyway. Butter? Butter is a scrimp for most things. You know, if you're just using it for for every day, every day buttering your bread, it's fine to buy the regular stuff. But our recipes editor swears by grass-fed butter for making waffles and pie crusts. I, I think good butter yeah. with a, with the right kind of salt and and a little Maldon salt goes a long way. What it's, brand do you buy? My, I, I buy Maldon salt, mm-hmm. the Plougras butter, Maldon mm-hmm. salt. I went to cooking school. Like, I'm just okay. So you can attest to this. I can attest to this. And chicken. Chicken is interesting. You should splurge for quality, but you can scrimp on the cut. Go for thigh meat. It's delicious. Excellent. All right. That's what we're going to do. Jillian, thanks so much for being here and, and doing this with us. I appreciate it. Where can people find you and Pure Wow if they haven't gotten on the bandwagon? Just go to purewow.com. Everything's there. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. So let's move on to your questions. You know we love to hear from you. You can get us on Facebook, on Twitter, and at jeanchatsky.com. Kelly Hultgren has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly. Hello. So what do you have for us this week? At Sarah Huntley 206 tweeted asking, what's the best way to save for retirement if you're a freelancer? So this is a terrific question, in part because so many people these days are working for smaller employers that may or may not offer a retirement plan, and that puts the onus to save for retirement on the individual. The place to start is just with an IRA, and it can be a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. A Roth IRA is an account into which you put money on which you've already paid taxes. So that money can just grow and grow and grow and grow, and when you pull it out, hopefully at retirement, You don't have to pay taxes on it again. For that reason, it's really, really good for younger people and for anybody who believes that their tax rate will be going up in the future, either because they're going to be earning more or because they just think tax rates are going up in the future, and a lot of people do. A traditional IRA is uh, an account into which you put money that you haven't paid taxes on. It's pre-tax money. You get a tax deduction for making the contribution. Again, the money grows and grows and grows and grows until retirement. But when you get to retirement and you pull the money out, you have to pay income taxes on that money. The other benefit to a Roth is that it has some flexibility that a traditional IRA doesn't have. If you put money into a Roth, you can pull out your contributions, not your proceeds, but your contributions because you've already paid taxes on them. You can also pull out money to buy a first house and for education if you need to. So, you know, just a good way to go. 
The best way to do it, though, is to try to mirror a 401k. And that means set up automatic contributions into those accounts so it just happens that you don't have to think about it every time you want to make a contribution. You can put up to $5,500 into an IRA, either a Roth or a traditional, this year. And if you're 50 or over, you can put an extra $1,000 in. So that's a good way to go. In addition to the tax differences and then also the flexibility that a Roth offers. When shopping Roth IRAs, for example, is there another factor that can help people decide. compare and decide? That's that's what I get caught up on. Yeah. So fees are important. You know, there are costs associated with IRA accounts, both the account and the investments that you put into the account. And whenever you're looking at fees, it's important to remember that any money that you spend on fees is not money that's going into your pocket. So compare fees, compare fees on investments, and that's a good way to go. The other thing I think to keep in mind is if you have a 401k or another plan or two from a prior employer, like many people do, I like aggregating. I like keeping them all in one place where I can sign on and look at them all at the same time. I think it also helps keeping your portfolio of investments aligned. Mm-hmm. So, Simplifies it. Yeah, administrative ease. Mm-hmm. Our next question is an email from Ronnie. She writes, what advice do you have for stay-at-home moms? All of our money is in joint accounts, so there is no issue of his or mine. It's all ours. I have an old 401k from when I worked, but have not contributed to it for years. I think this is a great question that so many people are in, and it's not only stay-at-home moms these days, it's stay-at-home dads, stay-at-home spouses. Whenever one person is out of the workforce, the misconception is that that person doesn't have the ability to contribute to retirement. But in fact, that's totally wrong. You can open what's called a spousal IRA, and as long as you've got a spouse in the workforce earning enough money to fund that contribution, you can put up to the same $5,500, $6,500 if you're 50 or over into that IRA and you can roll your old 401k over to an account at the same firm. So that makes for the same sort of easy administrative management that we were talking about before. Pay attention. That's the other thing you need to do. I mean, it's not just a matter of contributing. It's a matter of sitting down jointly and thinking about what do we want our money to do for us? And are we using that money to get us to those goals? And and those goals may be retirement. They may be college. They may be things that are in the much more near term. But that spousal IRA is not used nearly often enough. I hadn't heard of it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Learn something new every day on her money. Every day. And then so with a spousal IRA, is it more similar to a regular, a traditional IRA or Roth when it comes to taxes? A spousal IRA is just an IRA for spouses, but you can have a Roth. You can have a traditional one. Doesn't matter. Great. Thank you. Sure. There you go. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks, everybody, for those questions. Just remember, whatever is on your mind, we want to talk about it. So reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, and jeanchatsky.com. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. You know, I was thinking that whenever I go out and I give a talk, um, particularly to a group of women, it, it doesn't matter where I am, doesn't matter the age of the people in the audience, but there are always three questions that I can pretty much guarantee that I will be asked during Q&A. Number one, what's the best way to teach kids about money? Number two, 
what do you think about long-term care insurance? And number three, how do I find a financial advisor that I can trust? My guest today, Liz Davidson, is here to help us answer that last question. Liz runs a company called Financial Finesse. Financial Finesse. That is a tough thing to say three times very quickly. <laughs> it, financial Finesse is a company that provides financial wellness programs to employers. She's also the author of a new book called What Your Financial Advisor Is Not Telling You. Liz, welcome. Thanks for having me. So you're not a financial advisor. I know you want to be upfront about that. I am absolutely not. I've never been a financial advisor. Uh, my background is in investment banking and then running a hedge fund prior to starting Financial Finesse. And since I started Financial Finesse, I've been CEO and founder, but not one of the people delivering our services. So regarding advice, what's your formula? What's your secret sauce for finding an advisor that you can trust? You know, that's the literally million-dollar-plus question. You know, there is no cut and dry, your advisor must be fee only, or he or she must have a CFP or 10 years of experience. But you can put a set of standards in place that really put you in a position to be looking at elite advisors and then ask them the right questions. So the standards to look at, I would say, look for a cert- the certified financial planner designation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is similar to the bar exam for an attorney. Three years of coursework, an exam that is an extremely rigorous exam and continuing education. So you know that they really know their stuff. Look for 10 years plus of experience. There's research that 10,000 hours doing whatever your profession is is where you really hit your stride. So you don't want to be the guinea pig. You want to have the planner that has that experience. Look for someone that starts with you. So they should never lead with a product or service, fund, annuity, anything like that. They should always lead with understanding you, your goals, where you are now, your risk tolerance, and then putting together a financial plan as opposed to being um, product-driven. What's your feeling on working with a woman as a woman versus a man? I would say first looking at what your priorities are. So if your priorities is that someone understands your concerns as a woman, which we live longer, we have higher health care expenses, for better or worse, we're likely to be single at the end of our lives. Um, And that those are strong uh, priorities in your financial plan. And you connect better with women and feel that there's going to be that understanding, I think it's something you should look for. If instead you're really more focused on, do I have the personal chemistry with this person? Does this person meet my criteria? So I'm going to want to focus on estate planning and insurance strategies. Do they have the expertise in that area? And I really don't care as much if they're a man or a woman. What I care is, do I like them? Do we have the chemistry? Do they meet my standards. And I think people fit into one or two buckets. I feel like I should come clean here because I do have a financial advisor, which many people are often surprised to hear. And he's a guy. Um, That was mine. (laughs) My gynecologist is not a guy, but my financial advisor is a guy. I, I tend to feel like it's very important to have 
people who have dealt with other people like you. Yes. So if you're going through a divorce, you want a financial advisor who deals with a lot of people going through a divorce. My next door neighbor works for a large pharmaceutical company, and she works with a financial advisor who works with a lot of people at that particular company because this advisor has schooled himself, and again, this is a he, not a she, but he schooled himself on their benefit plans. He mm-hmm. understands how their stock options so work. So important. And so yeah. you don't have to have somebody learning on your dime. You don't want them getting educated on your dime. What do you feel about references? I know a lot of people are reluctant to ask their planner for references. I think it's a good idea. Oh, absolutely. Ask for references. And I I think you should ask for references, both of people that have stayed with the planner for a while, so long-term references, but also who has left. And if they're willing to give you references to clients who have left for whatever reason, I think that's a very good sign. And then the questions you should ask those people is understanding why they left. If they left because it was a down market and they panicked or because they actually needed to spin down that money or they had an emergency or whatever it may be, that's not the planner's fault. If they left because there were signs of distrust, they were having trouble getting the planner on the phone, you know, they weren't getting what they needed... That's a different scenario. Let's talk about compensation. Financial advisors get paid in a lot of different ways. So if you're trying to compare, how how do you do that? How do you look at a a fee-only financial advisor and compare them to somebody who gets paid on commission? How do you compare those people to people who take a percentage of assets under management? What's the best way to figure out, okay, how much is this relationship going to cost me? You know, a good financial planner should be very upfront about that and answer in very clear terms and show you exactly what the total cost in dollars in dollars is. Um, there are planners that have hybrid models, so they can show you, well, if you hire me on a fee-only basis, this is what it's going to cost. If it's a commission basis, it's going to cost this much. And really, I think it's making sure you know exactly what you are paying, and making sure that you're comfortable with that method of payment. So in terms of planners that are making commissions, understanding they may have an interest in specific products and services. If you trust them and they have great references and a track record of building great plans for people, it's probably not an issue. But if you'd feel more comfortable with someone who's charging you by the hour and they're not tied to any specific financial products or services or charging you by the plan, you can find that as well. You can find that as well. And then you have to decide what's going to be the most cost effective as well as the most effective for your situation. Liz Davidson, it was a pleasure to see you. Thanks for being here. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. 
Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we'll be talking with Dr. Robbie Ludwig about her new book, Your Best Age Is Now. She wants everybody out there to embrace the ageless mindset and just forget about all those dates on the calendar. I got to tell you, Robbie, I am a fan of that. Of course, we will take your questions and always we have a way for you to thrive. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in then.